Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first official episode of my new podcast called Just One More Thing. My name is Norgi, and thank you for tuning in and joining me tonight. Um, before we get too far into this episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has reached out to me on social media, uh, left comments, sent uh, private messages and text messages and emails uh, with encouragement and excitement about um, this new podcast venture and um, it was really cool just to get some feedback and uh, to hear some ideas and some suggestions as well as some um, encouragement. Um, I'm really excited about where this podcast is going to go and I am encouraged by the fact that so many people are taking a vested interest in um, whatever this might be and that's very encouraging like I said because you know Lots of people love podcasts and listening to podcasts, but, um, you know, maybe this is something that might require a little audience interaction or participation, and, and I'm all for that. So, again, thank you so much for um, being supportive and, and uh, tuning in, and hopefully this will be something that you enjoy listening to as often as we can crank out these episodes. So, um, speaking of episodes with this first one, um, I want to be um, honest from the outset and say that I'm going to try to record this particular episode in one take. And I don't say that because um, I'm trying to pat myself on the back or to prove some sort of feat of strength or um, endurance or stamina. But it's just because the uh, subject matter is um, a little heavy. And so um, I'm going to try to make it through this episode in one shot. Um, just so that it's honest as possible and there might be some emotion here and I apologize if any of this is difficult for you to listen to. Um, it's certainly difficult for me to talk about, um, but it's important for me to talk about. And so um, I guess, you know, I don't know if a, an advisory is, is necessary, um, but I'm going to be spending this episode talking about my mother, um, who passed away, um, just shy of a month after her 64th birthday, um, back in May of this year. And so I, I don't know how, um, detailed this is going to get as far as, you know, how far back I'm going to go and that kind of thing, but certainly want to take you through everything that sort of happened, um, leading up to her death, um, at age 64 and just a lot of the things that happened and a lot of the things that I experienced. And um, I haven't really had an opportunity to talk much about the situation um, out loud. Um, not that me talking about the situation out loud is necessary. However, um, I haven't really acknowledged um, some of the uh, questions or concerns or um people reaching out to check in on me uh, while it was all going on. And, um, you know, for obvious reasons, I was going through something very profound and, and it was difficult to talk about. And and so um, I, th I guess this is my way of, of maybe working through some of the things that I haven't been able to address. So um, my mother's name uh, is Ruth, was Ruth. And... Um, she was born in Puerto Rico in 1958 and came to the States um, in her early teenage years um, with m my grandma and grandpa and 
the rest of the family and uh, lived in the States for um, the rest of her life, um, living in various states and uh, uh, cities, Boston, Massachusetts, Miami, Florida, um, here, there, and everywhere, and eventually settling into the Midwest uh, sometime in her 20s. And um, my family, um, quite historically, um, didn't really come from much. Um, we, you know, my grandmother, uh, has lived a very, um, I don't know, modest life. Um, poor, I guess is the best, um, uh, term. Um, we didn't have much growing up, um, didn't have a whole lot of material possessions and a whole lot of money or a whole lot of this or that, but, um, we made it through it and for better, or for worse, it, uh, it tempered some of our um, experiences and and hardened our our skin and and exteriors and um, you know it resulted in some of my family um, being you know sort of statistics of the system and, and it resulted in some of them sort of um, succeeding despite the situation and so I don't want to make this about um, talking badly about my family. Uh, that's not what this is about, but I just want to give you an honest, um, sort of picture. And so, um, my mother was the product of two, uh, very, uh, abusive alcohol and drug filled, um, marriages. Um, her first husband, um, and her had, uh, three children, um, and they are my half-brother and uh, two half-sisters. I certainly never uh, refer to them as half-brother and half-sisters. They're my brother and sisters. Um, that's the way that it's always been. That's the way that it's always going to be. But just to give you an idea, um, I have a, a an older brother and two older sisters, and we have the same mom and a different dad. And so that relationship... Um, ended and it, again a lot of uh domestic abuse and alcoholism and drugs and just not a good relationship and um so at some point um the relationship ended and i believe um he passed away uh rather um uh graphically and i won't get into that um at least not in this episode and so my mother um you know, continued living her life and eventually met my biological father and um, they had me and my younger sister. And so, um, again, another marriage that was filled with a lot of abuse and alcoholism and drug use and um, witnessing as a very young kid um, a lot of these things, the, the drug use, the alcoholism, the um the domestic violence and it 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 had an effect on me um and again i was very very young when i saw a lot of these things and uh that never leaves your mind um it's burned in there and i i can still remember it and see it in my head like it happened five minutes ago and um and so domestic violence is something that I, I you know, um, 
I take very seriously and, and, you know, obviously not that having to have witnessed um, domestic violence means that it's any more important to me than it is to anyone who hasn't witnessed it, but um, it, it definitely it definitely has an effect on you to where it's it's something you never ever wish on your worst enemy um no matter how bad of an enemy they are and and so um my mother and uh biological father um however long they were together i i, I don't think i know entirely but um they were married and um in addition to the domestic abuse there was abuse of my me and my siblings and so um a lot of things happened um sort of in the late 80s to early mid 90s as a result of this particular relationship and so um we were put into foster care um at least i was and um uh i don't think it was the same experience for my other siblings but um, I was put into the foster care system, uh, I don't know, June, uh, of 1995. So early June of 1995, which is just shy of my 10th birthday. And so, um, when you're a kid, a 10 year old kid and, you know, one day you're at school and, um, these strange adults come and pick you up and, put you into the back of a car and say we're leaving and you don't understand everything that's going on um it's a pretty scary situation and and foster care is something that um i will certainly cover in another episode but uh suffice to say that you know when you're taken away from your mom it's not fun and it was traumatizing and um i, I don't know what else to say about it except that um it, it 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 scars you because again you go from being with your natural family um regardless of the circumstances and the abuse and and the neglect and and the poor conditions and the house hopping and the lack of food and all that kind of stuff um it's your family and so um the state comes and takes you away and at the time we um they took us to what used to be the social services building in the downtown Kenosha area, right around um, 52nd Street and like um, uh, 7th or 6th Avenue, um, not far from like Luperini's gas station. Um, but um, they take you there and then they take you to the back of the, um, of the building and it's basically... Uh, a giant warehouse with donated clothes and so they they ask you what your size is and they 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 um they give you a bunch of clothes that they put into a bag and um and then they took me to a um my first placement uh foster home and uh it was respite care it was basically a foster family that um takes uh, foster kids that are just getting into the system and they need temporary placement until um, a permanent home is found. And so um, my first foster home um, in Kenosha was about a week long. And so um, I was with that family um, again 
being a nine-year-old kid and not understanding everything that was going on, um, it wasn't a great experience for me. And um, I don't think I said one word to anyone in that family, um, the foster parents, the, 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 the foster brothers and sisters. Um, and it's nothing against them, obviously. It wasn't because I didn't like them particularly. But at nine years old, when you get thrown into the foster care system and you don't understand everything that's going on, um, you know, that was just how I handled that situation. And, and, and again, it wasn't anything against that family. Um, they were um, very good to me for the week that I was there and they treated me with, with respect and dignity and they tried to do their best to um, make me feel welcomed and make me feel like I wasn't alone in the world. And um, they, um, I, ha I was there for a week and then eventually um, was moved out to um, Kenosha County, um, the Bristol area, Paris Township more specifically, and was placed into my permanent foster home with the two people who would eventually become my adoptive parents. And um, again, that's something that I'll cover in more detail um, in a later episode. But um, my parents always encouraged me to have a relationship with my natural family. And part of that um, relationship was uh, having a relationship with my mother. Um, and it, it was hard because even at a very young age, having being able to have that relationship with your mother and being optimistic that things are going to work out and that you know she's gonna um, do the things that she needs to do in order for us to get back together as a family and um, you see her all the time and have visits and and have a meal together and spend time together and things will be good all over again and they weren't um, for the most part um, you know lots of um, missed visits and miscommunications and missed opportunities and all of that kind of stuff. So um, I, I moved out to that house three days shy of my 10th birthday. And so from basically from age nine to about age 16, my relationship with my mother, while it was um, there and we had contact, um, it was not a great relationship because um, she was living her life the way that she felt she needed to live her life. And I was um, growing up and becoming a young adult and having experiences as a kid that um, I didn't get to have or wouldn't have gotten to have um, if I had still been in that situation. So um, we sort of drifted apart. But, you know, as things go, um, I grew up with very loving parents and and they still continue to encourage me to have a relationship with my natural family and my brothers and sisters and invite them over and invite my mom over and invite my uncles over and and it was great and you know despite the fact that there were a lot of missed visits and I didn't get to see my mom a whole lot uh, growing up in that period because she chose um, to do other things, occasionally uh, she'd pop up out of nowhere and, you know, those old feelings um, flush flood back over you. And so, you know, hey, mom's back and things are going to be better. And she says that she's she's not drinking or she's not using drugs or 
um, you know, she's she's got a job and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I'd get really, really excited and then things would be good for a short period of time. And then it would go back to the status quo, which was, um, you know, not a lot of contact and not a lot of visitation. And so um, the older I got as uh, growing from nine to 10 and 10 to 11 and 12 and so forth, uh, that time just sort of flew by. And I began to understand as I got a little bit older that the only way that I'm going to have an opportunity to perhaps be successful in life or have um, a good life or make something of myself, whatever that meant in my head back then, was to continue to um, stay in the situation I was in. And so while it was a long-term placement for me, um, adoption was naturally something that entered my mind. And so I talked about it at length with my parents and they wanted to adopt me and um, I wanted them to adopt me and I was really, really excited about it. And, um, but obviously when it comes to foster care, the, um, the ultimate goal is for the, the child to be placed back with the natural family. That's the ultimate goal for, you know, it's sort of a, Hey, while your child is being taken care of by this temporary family, you have, um, requirements that you have to meet and you have to go to these parenting classes and anger management classes and you got to get your your life together and you got to straighten up your act and you got to you, you know all of these sort of things and at the time and and I I can't I can't speak to them specifically so I don't want to deal falsely here but um, the requirements seemed pretty pretty basic and low and I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing but it seemed like at least in my mind back then that one only had to do the bare minimum as the um, as the natural parent in order to establish, um, you know, or keep their parental rights. And so we would go through the process of starting up the adoption. And then here comes my mom. No, I, I don't want this to happen. I want my son back. And I've done I've met requirement X, Y, Z in order for that to happen. And, um, and so pretty much from age 12 until about 16, this was sort of the, um, the carousel of what was happening. We'd start the process and then she would petition the court to stop it. And it just went round and round and round. And so we finally got to a point where, um, at age 16, I had a conversation with my mother and I said, listen, mom, I love you and you're my mother and you're always going to be my mother and we're always going to have a relationship. But this adoption is something that I want. It's not anything that anyone is forcing me to do. Um, I want the opportunities that I want to be able to have to be um successful and to have a good life and to um, experience things that I wouldn't otherwise get to experience. And I can't do that um, going back to the natural family. I, you know, my, I need this um, and I need you to support me in this and I need you to support this adoption. And so after um, some, um, after a period of time 
where um, it sort of dawned on her that um, her son, her 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 youngest son, her baby son, as she always called me, um, sort of opened her eyes. And so uh, a painful decision for her was made by her, and she finally relented and said, I will sign the termination of parental rights. And so by, by doing that, um, we were able to move forward with the adoption. And so I was adopted by my parents um, officially. And what happens when you, when, when you become adopted is you get a new birth certificate, and the new birth certificate says that um, your adoptive parents are your parents and your last name changes and all that kind of stuff. And so I elected to, instead of completely changing my last name, I hyphenated my last name um, in order to honor both where I came from and where I was going. And I don't regret that decision from a, um, from a standpoint of, of honoring my, my uh, identity and my heritage and my family, my natural family and my new family. But um, from a legal standpoint and a standpoint of uh, having to write out my name and trying to uh, get other people to understand what my name is, uh, it certainly can be painful. But uh, I digress. I was adopted and um, I grew up, I got older, um, graduated high school, you know, started, uh, became an adult. And so as I got older um, and I gained more independence and, you know, got my own place and got a car and, and that kind of stuff, um, I developed more of a relationship with my biological mother. And so the older I got, the more fortified our relationship became. And so while um, my mom and I had a um, a better relationship as I got older, and certainly in my uh, in our in the later years of our lives, um, there were still those elements of she um, she still saw me as her baby son, and um, I don't know if that's a thing that mothers do that you know, your, your, your child, you always treat them like a child and, and you say things like look both ways before you cross and, uh, you know, buckle your seatbelt and, and, and don't give rides to strangers and things like that. She would, she would say that to me. I mean, even, um, almost to the day that she died, um, would say a lot of things like that. And, um, I always felt, um, uh, strange about those things and they often made me laugh. And now looking back at it, um, looking back on it, um, now that she's gone, I understand that she was just being a mother. And so, um, again, our relationship got better, but it wasn't without difficulty. And there were times where we had, um, differences of opinion and there were times that we had arguments and there were times that we, you know, um, were angry with each other and we argued and we, and we, and we, uh, we went back and forth and, and those times were hard. And I think one of the reasons that they were so hard is because there was a lot of those conversations and, and opportunities to have those conversations that we didn't get to have, um, when they should have been had. And so, um, maybe some of the, the frustration on my part was just anger 
um, at her because at least at the time I felt like, you know, she was a bad mom and she didn't do her job and she had a lot of excuses. And so um, I, I built up a lot of resentment for those things. And it got to a point um, in the same way that it dawned over my mother that um, uh, there are s situations and circumstances in life that are beyond your control. Um, it finally dawned on me that many of the things that happened um, to me and my siblings and my mother when we were all younger um, were circumstances out of our control. And so um, without sounding like um, I'm trying to be magnanimous here, um, I forgave my mother for everything that ever happened because many of those things were out of her control. She was the product of her environment. She was the product of um, two very abusive relationships. She was the product of um, being an alcoholic and an addict and a lot of other things. My mom dealt with a lot of um, issues in her life, not the least of which substance abuse issues, but mental health issues. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend to know everything that she was going through and everything that she might have had and everything that she did have, but she had a laundry list of, of mental health issues, um, manic depression, bipolar disorder, um, I suspect maybe even um, some compulsion disorders and um, anger issues and, and just lots and lots of things that, um, you know, people study and professionals diagnose and, and talk about and, and, and things of that nature. But I know that my mom was going through this and these things for most of her life. And for someone who had to deal with a lot of those things the way that she had to deal with on top of um, being in very abusive relationships and dealing with um, substance abuse issues. Um, she handled them very, very um, well, as well as she possibly could. And so, uh, let's see. I am trying to sort of piece together here. And again, I apologize. I, 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 I suppose I could have been better prepared for this um, episode, but again, I'm just trying to get through this um, as best as I can. So um, bear with me here. Um, um, my mom lived in Kenosha for most of her life, and um, she liked the city of Kenosha. But eventually, um, back in 2016, 2017, my mom decided to um, move up to Wapan. Um, we have um, family in the area. It's about, um, I don't know, about an hour and a half northwest of the Kenosha Racine area. And so my grandma lives up there. I have uncles that live up there. I have an aunt that lives up there. Um, a lot of family live in that area. And my mom decided that she wanted a little bit quieter of a life and a little simpler existence and she was concerned with things happening in Kenosha that um, have become rampant crime and 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 uh, and uh, you know just the 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 atmosphere in the places that she lived in she 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 didn't like it so she moved to upon in 2016 and 2017 and so um, my ability to see her um, no I shouldn't say that uh, the amount of times that I was able to see her 
uh, decreased a lot. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was uh, an hour and a half away. And, you know, I'm, I'm young and I have stuff to do and, uh, you know, um, I'm living my life and whatever other excuse um, people think of to, to not spend time with the people that they love. But um, I had every single one of them. And some of them were valid and some of them were just excuses. But um, I didn't get to see my mom a whole lot. And, and, and she wanted me to come up all the time. And I wish that I could come up all the time. But I didn't, and um, it's it's uh it's unfortunate, and and so when I did see her, um, oftentimes it was um, very positive, and we enjoyed each other's company, and we watched movies, and we talked about movies, and we talked about um, you know life, and and we just spent time together, but. Um, I'm different from a lot of the members of my natural family. And so I don't always quite fit in with, with them. And it's not for lack of trying. It's just, um, that's the way that it is. And so, um, I don't know if this is a, a, a product of being Hispanic, but, uh, we tend to be loud and a little more bombastic and a little more, um, you know, uh, raucous for lack of a better term. And so, um, many of the conversations, especially if other members of the family or my siblings were over, um, you know, they were loud and, uh, sometimes, you know, there were a lot of arguments and disagreements and, and yelling and, and sometimes screaming. And it was unpleasant a lot and difficult for, um, me to sort of enjoy that atmosphere. So it was hard to, to, um, sort of deal with that. And again, it's not for lack of trying, but, um, it's just not my scene. And so I did the best that I could to, um, to, to come to grips with that. And so I would try to get up to see my mom as often as I possibly could. And, you know, again, spend time with her and um, run errands for her and help her out around the house and that kind of stuff. And so um, I'm sort of a workaholic. And so I, especially when I am at work, I try to be 100% focused on the job that I'm doing. And um, I'm really involved in theater. And so... Um, I, I took a more active role sort of backstage and becoming more involved in, in technical things like designing sound and, and, um, just crew things and just more the, the, uh, production aspect of, of, of doing theater. And so, um, because that's kind of stuff that interests me and the kind of stuff that, um, holds my attention and keeps me focused and keeps me engaged, I, um, would pour myself into doing that kind of stuff. And I would spend countless hours at the theater and at home working on theater stuff. And I would just get really into what I was doing. And so, um, towards the end, 
the last few years of my mom's life, um, I started um, walking and becoming more active that way. And so I would oftentimes walk from um, Racine to Kenosha. And um, I would call her up and we would talk a lot on the phone. And I was walking every day. So it got to a point where I was talking to my mom on the phone every day. And it was really good. And we had a lot of great conversations. And um, it, I think it, it sort of softened the rough edges of our relationship. And it was good to have conversations um, with my mom. Normal conversations, as normal as they possibly could be, whatever that means. And so um, we would talk about, again, movies, um, our love of movies and our love of classic television and and classic music and, and Frank Sinatra and Columbo um, and Carol Burnett and Johnny Carson and, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. and things like that. And so... Um, we had a lot of laughs and we shared a lot of, um, our interests and it was, it, it felt right. Um, and so it took me becoming a much older adult to understand what it was like to have a normal ish relationship with my mother. And I began to sort of understand that she, this is what she was trying to accomplish during all the years of foster care and me being a young man that she was just trying to establish a normal relationship with her son. And maybe I just didn't get it. Um, it was probably because, again, maybe I had that resentment. I don't know. Um, but our relationship began to grow more um, from me being an older adult to her being... Um, in the uh, September of her years. Um, and so um, we would talk every day on the phone and we'd talk for hours because, you know, I'm walking from Racine to Kenosha and depending on how far I walk, that can be an hour and a half uh, conversation to three or four hours. And we would just talk and talk and talk and, and, and time would just fly by and we're having great conversations. And so... Um, uh, I don't know, about 20, 2019, uh, 2020, I would say. Um, no, I would say 2021, excuse me. Uh, 2021, um, we started to have conversations um, that uh, involved uh, talking about mortality. And my mom you know, was beginning to understand, at least at her age, that, you know, she's not a spring chicken anymore and that um, she wanted to um, make sure that that her affairs were in order and, you know, taking care of things for if and when she ever um, passed away. And at least at the time, it wasn't anything we thought was going to be happening anytime soon, um, at least... Um, my understanding is that um, there was nothing to be worried about. And she, if there was something to worry about, at least back then, um, she certainly didn't let on, and I didn't catch on if that, were the, if that was the case. But um, So we talked a lot about things like uh, a will, you know, uh, making sure that 
you have your things in order and, um, you know, a life insurance policy. And that was a big thing that we talked about was a life insurance policy so that if something happens to her and or when she passes away, um, that things could be taken care of financially, at least um, to settle her um, affairs and to perhaps maybe even leave something behind for her children. And so we talked about that a lot. And so um, right away I, I, I got to work and I started making phone calls and, and, and getting quotes and, and talking to different companies. And again, this is in you know, 2021, um, 2020, 2021, I should say. And so every time we'd get to a point where we'd have the conversation and I'd say, hey, mom, let's do this. Um, you know, there's a company that gave this quote and that quote and this quote and that quote, and all we got to do is give them a call and we got to have a conversation. You got to fill out this paperwork. And it was at that point that my mom began to sort of, um, retreat from the idea. Um, I think by, by facilitating or actually taking a step towards, um, a life insurance policy or pre-planning a funeral or um, having a will or assigning an executor of your estate, that makes it real, that makes it tangible, that, that is essentially um, materializing your mortality. And obviously, she didn't know when, because it was just sort of a precautionary thing, but um, mortality is you know, when you're faced with death and you think about death and, and what happens and the fact that you're not here anymore. My mother dealt with, um, I would, I'll call it crippling anxiety. Um, she did. And so those things started to make her become very anxious and she'd have panic attacks and um, she would have bouts of, of, of depression and, and hysterical crying because now all of a sudden it's about her being dead and What's going to happen to my kids and what's going to happen? Uh, how are, how's this going to be paid for and what's going to happen to this and that? And so um, I wouldn't push it. I'd tell my mom, listen, it's okay. We have plenty of time and um, it doesn't have to happen right now. Um, whenever you're ready, you know, we can do this. And so um, I never pushed it and I didn't want to push it. And I don't regret not pushing it because um, the one thing I didn't want my mom to feel was that um, she was going to die or that she was, um, you know, going to leave her kids in a, in a bad way or anything like that. So again, I didn't push it and I was just very, um, soft about it and said, Hey mom, you know, whenever you're ready, um, we can, we can do it. And so I would, whenever we would have conversations about whatever, and that topic would come up again, she would be all about getting it done and then i would say hey um i've arranged a uh, a meeting with this company to have a, a conversation or a meeting uh to talk to someone on the phone about um from this company to talk about a life insurance policy and and again she would the anxiety the depression the crying the 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 panic attacks and so again um i backed off of it so there was an ebb and flow to our conversations whenever we talked about um this kind of stuff so, um, fast forward to early 2022 and, you know, our conversations are still happening. 
on almost a daily basis. And I'm still doing my walks, or at least as often as I possibly can doing the walks. But whether I'm walking or not, I'm still having regular conversations with my mother. Now, I'm not seeing her um, as much, again, because she's in Waupon and, and I'm down here. But we're still having regular contact through the phone. And so um, as as 2021 turned into 2022 um, and we get into the January, February, um, I started to notice sort of a shift in our conversations. And my mom was was asking hypothetical questions and she was making some inferences that I guess back then I didn't understand, but I now understand um, what she was trying to do. And so um, I don't know exactly everything that happened. But um, from what she tells me, or told me, I rather, um, she was um, having uh, bowel movement issues. Um, she noticed um, blood in her stool and um, very uncomfortable pain when she was sitting down, just regularly sitting down or sitting uh, on the toilet to go to the bathroom. And so she was um, letting her doctor know, or a doctor know, I'm not sure if she, if, she, uh, if she saw a specialist at first or if she got a referral for something, but um, she was complaining about this pain. And, um, and so the doctor was telling her, oh, it's hemorrhoids. Um, it happens you know, women your age and, and this, that, and the other thing. And so um, they sort of um, chalked it up to hemorrhoids. And so they'd give her medication um, and it, things would be okay for a little bit. And then it would happen again and again and more often and it began to get more painful. So I think at some point here um, in, again, January, February, they decided to... Um, do a colonoscopy and to start taking these complaints a little bit more seriously than um, initial the initial response was, which was what's oh, just hemorrhoids or um, yeah. So uh, they did a colonoscopy. They ran some tests, and at some point in late January, early February, my mom was diagnosed with stage three anal rectal cancer, and so they. Um, set her up with a um, with a uh, oncologist and basically the oncologist said that um, she uh, the best course of action would be um, double treatment both chemotherapy and radiation um, sort of an aggressive approach to the kind of cancer that she had but based on his experiences and the survival rates she was looking at um, at least five or six years um, after the chemo and radiation was over with um, of survival and possibly more. Um, you know, the doctor was apparently very optimistic that um, things would go well. Now, I want to, um, before I go any further, preface this by all of this by saying that, um, that um, what I'm telling you uh, is things that I learned after the fact. Um, I did not know that my mother had cancer or that she was diagnosed with cancer until um, until late March. So let's circle back. 
so they started treatment right away. And so um, they were doing uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And I, and I honestly don't know. I, I want to say that she had 30 courses of chemotherapy that she was um, assigned. And I don't know. I think she got through a handful of them. I don't know how much radiation treatment she got. However, um, my mother, again, with her crippling anxiety and also a general fear of of pain and um, things going wrong with her body and such. Um, anyone who um, has had cancer or knows anyone who's been through cancer knows that chemotherapy alone is um, exhausting and it saps your energy and um, you basically don't want to do anything. It sort of sucks the life out of you. Um, that's one of the, the bad things about um, about chemotherapy is while it's it's used to help you hopefully um, er er uh, eradicate the cancer out of your body, um, it quite literally um, takes your life away um, while you're on it because it's uh, basically poison. And so um, my mom had her first appointment for chemotherapy and radiation. And she didn't quite understand everything that was going on or what the treatment course was. And she was just doing what she was supposed to do, or so she thought. So she had a second course um, scheduled for her. And um, and she missed the appointment. Um, the, the cancer hospital had set it up to where, because my mother didn't drive, um, and she hadn't driven in a very, very long time, they had transportation set up for her, so all they had to do, all she had to do was um, be outside at a specific time out of outside of her apartment, and they would pick her up. They would take her to her appointment. She'd have her appointment, and they would drive her back. Pretty simple. Um, my mom apparently misunderstood that. Um, you know, it wasn't just one chemotherapy appointment. It wasn't just one radiation appointment. It was several, and so she missed her first appointment, or I'm sorry, her second appointment. And so the oncology nurse attempted to get a hold of my mother, and they couldn't. And um, they were concerned. And at this time, my mother didn't have any um, uh, emergency contact or anything like that with the um, with the hospital. And so um, the hospital, the oncology nurse, uh, called. Um, law enforcement in Wapan and asked them to do a wellness check because they were concerned that they couldn't get a hold of her. So um, a uh, patrol car rolled up, and I don't remember if it was one officer or two officers, but they went to my mom's apartment. They knocked on the door. Um, they weren't getting an answer right away, and after a couple of minutes, she finally did answer. And she was surprised because why are these police officers here at my door? What's going on? Is it my kids? And sort of set off, set off all of these emotions. And so um, they told her that she needed, they were checking on her because she missed her chemotherapy and radiation appointment. And she called um, the oncology nurse and she said, well, I just did chemotherapy and radiation yesterday or the day before, whenever it was. And they said, it, no, it, this is an every day or every other day sort of thing. It's not just a one-time thing. 
So my mother misunderstood. So they rescheduled the appointment for the next day, and my mom came. And the oncology um, nurse and doctor and social worker had a conversation with my mom. And it went a little something like this, where um, because my because of the situation that had just happened and them not um, being able to get a hold of her and them being worried about her well-being and her welfare um, and also understanding that um, my mother opted to keep her cancer a secret and, and battle it privately. Um, they essentially told her that they recommended that she tell her her kids, her family, um, because cancer is not uh, a battle that um, most people should fight alone. Um, and so they understood that my mother, while very, very proud, um, perhaps may have, um, could have had um, a much better go at it if she uh, told her family. And so they insisted as much as they could, um, but she um, insisted in the opposite direction and didn't tell any of her kids or her family that she had cancer. However, they did say that um, because of the fact that she um, didn't want to tell any of her family that she had cancer, um, they recommended that she appoint someone as her medical power of attorney or medical proxy in order to um, advocate for her and make her medical decisions in the event that something were to happen to her um, or, you know, uh, if, uh, if, because they didn't want to call the cops again, essentially. And so um, they wanted to make sure that um, someone was there that they could talk to in case there were any concerns or anything like that. So um, it was at this point that my mother decided to tell them that she wanted me to be her medical proxy, her medical power of attorney. And um, again, on top of not knowing about the cancer, I didn't know about this either. And, uh, and so um, now we're into uh, March, early March. And uh, the chemotherapy and radiation treatments are continuing. And my mother is going through it, and um, she's losing the weight. Um, her appetite is completely gone. Um, because of radiation treatment is a very, very specific and focused treatment, because what they do is they, they, they narrow in, they, they laser in on where the cancer is. So the radiation treatment treats the cancer um, specifically where it is aggressively. And because, um, my mother had, um, anal rectal cancer, which again, um, you know, I don't have to show you a, uh, a map or talk about biology is in a very, very sensitive place in the human body, which was already under a lot of pain because of the cancer. Um, the radiation burns that she had made it very, very painful and uncomfortable for her to not only sit down, but also to use the bathroom. And um, 
so painful for her, it became, in fact, that um, she became afraid to use the bathroom. And she associated having to use the bathroom with eating and drinking. So my mother made the decision um, at that point to severely reduce the amount of food and water and liquids that she was consuming. And so I'm not sure exactly what she was eating. Um, I have some ideas. I also, based on some of the things that she told me, um, you know, most days she'd eat a boiled egg or two and a glass of water or a hot dog and a boiled egg and a glass of water. And again, when you're going, when you have cancer and you're going through chemo and radiation, you're with all these medications that, that make you lose weight and sap your hunger and take so much energy to fight through, um, your body needs more calories in order to give you the energy to get through a day. And so, um, my mother was, um, she was denying her body the calories and fluids that she needed in order to survive. Um, so on Tuesday, March 29th, I was at work and, um, I received a phone call and the phone call was from, um, you know, I, I don't know specifically where it was from, but I saw that it was a Wapan uh, and or Fond du Lac area code. And my mother had listed me as her um, emergency contact for her um, primary care physician. And oftentimes they would call me to say, hey, we just want to call you to remind your mother that she has an appointment on this day or your mom um, needs to call us to schedule an appointment, this, that and the other thing. So. I saw the, the number, again, didn't recognize it, but I figured it was probably um, her primary care physician to remind her about an appointment. So I answered the phone. And uh, I got, uh, the phone call was from a woman named Tammy. And um, Tammy introduced herself as an oncology nurse from um um, SSM Health in Fond du Lac. And she said that um, we're calling you because your mother missed her chemotherapy and radiation treatment um, yesterday. We've attempted to call her several times. She hasn't answered. She hasn't returned our phone calls. We've attempted to contact her today. And um, she is not responding, and we're concerned um, that she's not okay. And we were wondering if you would be able to get a hold of her. And my initial shock wasn't that my mom wasn't answering her phone, um, because sometimes she didn't. Sometimes people don't answer their phone. That's just the way that it is. Um, I'm notorious for that. Um, my initial shock was an oncology nurse was calling me about my mom. And so my first question was, was on, you're an oncology nurse? Um, that's uh, cancer, right? My mom has cancer. And she said, oh, you didn't know. 
And I said, no, I didn't know. And she said, well, legally, there's not a whole lot that I can say, and I'm sorry that you found out this way, but um, we need to get a hold of your mom, and that's the priority right now. So I took down her information, and I said, let me see what I can do to get a hold of her. And so I called my mom several, several times, and she didn't answer. I left voicemails. I sent text messages, and she's not answering. She's not responding. So I began to call my siblings, um, specifically the ones that live closer to her, and uh, asked them, you know, when was the last time you saw mom? When was the last time you talked to her? Um, have you heard from her recently? That kind of thing. And told them that, um, you know, uh, the doctor's office just called and, and said that they can't get a hold of mom and, and, and they're worried and concerned. And so they began to try to call her. In the meantime, I called my uncle who uh, lived lives right next door to where my mom lived uh, in the same apartment complex. Matter of fact, he is the um, maintenance person or superintendent, whatever you want to call it, of the building. And so um, I called him and I asked him the same question. Hey, um, what's going on with my mom? When was the last time you saw her? And he said, um, I saw her on Sunday, two days ago. She went to church with your aunt and, um, you know, they went to church and she came back. Um, and that's the last time I talked to her. I said, have you seen her? Have you, did you hear anything next door? Um, have you, you know, has she come by anything like that? And he said, no. And I said, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to, uh, try calling her. But while you're calling her, I need you to go to her apartment and knock on the door until she answers. And, uh, I told him that, um, the doctor's office had just called and that they were concerned because she missed an appointment and, um, I'm worried now, Wapan, again, an hour and a half away from where I was standing at that particular point. And so there's nothing that I could do as far as being there in a reasonable amount of time. So I'm trying to not panic and think the worst while I'm still at work trying to do my job and maintain uh, um, concentration on my job because obviously I have to stay focused and everything. And maybe there's no reason to panic. And so um, I'm following up with my brothers and sisters about hearing from her or calling her, and none of them are getting through to her. And so I finally call my uncle back after about five minutes, and he said, she's not answering her phone. She's not responding to her text messages. And I said, um, you're the maintenance guy, and you have the key to her house? And he said, yes. I said, I need you to take your key, and I need you to open her door. And he was a little hesitant because... Um, you know, you don't really want to enter into a tenant's uh, apartment um, without permission or whatever the case may be, which I understood. But I told him the gravity of the situation, which was, um, you know, while we quibble over the semantics of of um, of uh, covering your ass and and that kind of thing, my mom could be dead. I need you to gain access into the apartment. And so um, he said he would call me back. And so um, about 10 minutes later, he called me back. And um, I was on the phone with um, 
my sister and he left me a voicemail and he um and he said that she's okay she's alive barely but she's okay and so i called my uncle back and um he told me that he gained access into her apartment um however when he opened the door um my mom had a chain lock and um you know what those are you it's a little chain you put into the the latch and slide over and um you can open the door but only as far as the chain is long and so um that made me um uh, optimistic that she was home because that has to be latched from the inside obviously and so um so he gained access into the apartment he's calling her name he's calling her name he's calling her name and um she's not responding and so he told me that um he you know the door's not open and i said i need you to kick the door down i i don't i don't care um what it costs i'll replace the door i'll replace the latch whatever the case may be but i need you to get in there and make sure my mom's okay and so um again um uh i got off the phone with him um and i kind of um got ahead of myself where i said that she's okay um, barely alive. Uh, that was after um, he had tried to open the door, but the chain was engaged. So he finally did make his way into the apartment, and that's when he called me after um, some stuff had happened and um, told me that she was alive, she was okay, barely alive, but that she was okay. When he um, gained access into the apartment, um, it was him and my aunt who happened to be um, going to the apartment complex to um, visit with him and my grandma, um, they found my mother on the ground um, a couple feet in front of her couch, and she had very labored breathing. Um, it looks like she had perhaps um, vomited, um, fell and hit her head perhaps. We, we don't know the full extent of everything that happened, and I certainly didn't see it with my own eyes, but... Um, uh, they found her breathing, um, lightly and faintly breathing, but breathing, and she was unconscious. Um, they called um, emergency medical services um, right away, and um, they showed up, and they performed life-saving measures, and they stabilized her, and they took her to the hospital just a few blocks away from where she lived. And so I immediately left work, and made my way to a pond and um you know got to the emergency room and they gave us all the information that they had at the time which was my mother was basically in a coma um she wasn't breathing on her own they had her hooked up to an oxygen machine to help her breathe um that they were going to do um an MRI or a CAT scan to check for brain function, and because um, we we don't know if she wasn't breathing, if she if her brain was without, was without oxygen for a period of time, and and so um, just a lot of questions, and so uh, then other things had to start getting figured out because while my mom is clinging to life at this point, I have a lot of questions. Um, namely, my mom has cancer and I didn't know about it. None of us knew about it. Um, she didn't tell any of us. Um, she didn't tell us the extent of, of everything that was going on. And so, um, 
the attending physician at the ER um, got back to me and said, um, basically, uh, your mother's blood sugar is so low that she's basically in a, uh, I call it a diabetic coma. And it appears that your mother was, is malnourished. Um, she's got a lot of fluid buildup and edema in her legs that's working its way up to her, um, uh, the cavity around the lungs. So she had a pleural effusion, it's called. And that's where um, there's um, fluid buildup in the pleural space around the lungs. And if that isn't taken care of, it can get into the lungs and someone can drown. Um, so they stabilized my mom, but the hospital that she was at in Wapan wasn't um, equipped to deal with the kind of issues that she currently had and the kind of issues that she was going to start to have um, if they didn't get this taken care of. So they transferred her to a hospital in Fond du Lac and she was in the ICU. And basically my mom was in a coma for 10 days. And um, in the midst of all of this that was going on um, is when I found out um, about the cancer, the stage three anal rectal cancer. I also found out that, um, you know, she was malnourished and that um, because she was so malnourished and she was um, not taking care of herself, they decided to postpone um, all cancer treatments in order for her to get better before they resume those treatments. But um, because her body was <sighs> so um, in such poor condition, um, she was dealing with um, multiple system organ failure. Um, she was going into renal failure with her kidneys. Um, her... Uh, her blood pressure was um, dangerously low. Um, she was having difficulty breathing. Um, and we also found out that um, she had um, a, a, a liver so badly scarred over from um, cirrhosis and um, what we found out was hepatitis C that her liver was only at about 20%. Um, and, uh, that was going to cause some problems. So we're hoping that she makes it out of this coma. We weren't sure. Um, and this is again, when I'm finding out that she had cancer and now she's got all these other problems that she's going to have to contend with. And, um, the attending physician at the, at the, the ICU was basically saying that we should prepare for, um, the end of my mother's life they were not very optimistic that she was going to survive and so um i began to um inform other family members that uh, of the situation and uh letting them know that um it didn't look good and gave them all the information i could possibly give them um to keep them um up to date with what was going on and so um about a week into this coma, my mom started to show signs um, of life. And they determined, you know, in, in this period of time that, um, you know, 
she's not brain dead. Um, she didn't lose any brain function. It didn't appear that um, that her brain was without oxygen. However, um, had it been any later, um, and who knows if it was an hour, two hours, eighteen hours, eighteen minutes, um, it would have been a much different outcome. Perhaps my uncle would have found my mother deceased on the floor. And um, and so. Um, about 10 days after she was admitted, um, she was more or less awake and, um, she had this fog obviously because she'd been in a coma for 10 days. So she was very groggy and it's almost like talking to some, it was almost like talking to someone who is, um, asleep, um, or at least as close to asleep as, as can possibly be, but is still having a conversation with someone um, and she's not really able to talk very clearly because she's still hooked up to a machine that's helping her breathe. So it was very difficult for us to understand and communicate um, clearly. And so we did the best that we could as far as communicating is concerned. But slowly but surely, she began to uh, come out of this coma and become more alert and have conversations and and uh, eat and eventually be taken off of the the um the breathing machine the ventilator and um and uh eventually be moved out of the um ICU uh onto the fifth floor and um and so everything looked good we were excited that you know mom was back and you know she's recovering and she's on the mend and you know, we began to have conversations about, hey, what's going on? Why didn't you tell us about the cancer? And and sort of guilt bombing her, not because we wanted her to feel guilty, but just because, you know, this is our mom and we are a little bit, you know, angry and upset and, 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 and hurt that she didn't tell us that she had cancer. And, um, at least at that point, I didn't feel, um, I didn't understand it. I didn't. And uh, and so while we're optimistic about everything that's going on, um, uh, the attending physician at the uh, on the fifth floor uh, asked me to speak privately, and uh, and so uh, he basically told me that. Um, while she is out of her coma, and um, it's a miracle that she was um, out of her coma, um, her prognosis is not good. Um, her function, her kidney, her organ function was still um, uh, not very good. Her kidney function was um, headed in the wrong direction, and her liver function was decreasing um, down from the very little function that it had in the first place. So she was at a 15, 20%, and then she was about 10% liver function. And the fluid buildup in her legs and in the pleural space around her lungs was continuing to happen. So, you know, they recommended some things. And uh, then the doctor talked to me about her um, being her medical proxy. And... Basically, um, you know, when you're someone's 
medical power of attorney, you make their medical decisions for them and advocate for them in the event that they're unable to do so for themselves. And so um, the doctor enacted the um, me as the medical power of attorney because they felt that my mom's weakened condition um, was to the point where um, she may not be able to make these decisions for herself. And so um, in the conversation with the doctor, uh, he basically said that the prognosis isn't good and he's estimating that she... Um, that she had six months to live, which nobody wants to hear that they have six months to live or um, whether it's them or someone they love. And that was that was hard to be told in a very cold, callous, indifferent matter-of-fact way your mom's dying and i estimate that um she has no more than six months to live um and that they'll do everything that they can to keep her comfortable and to help her deal with her pain and other issues but they don't foresee her making a recovery and so um I had to start the very difficult task of (sighs) um, planning for the inevitability of my mother's passing. And so um, I began to, at a fevered pace, um, call funeral homes and call... um, uh, life insurance places and different organizations just to sort of um, get a grip on this because now all of those conversations I had with my mom about a life insurance policy and taking care of things after she's passed away and having a, a little nest egg so that we didn't run into any problems. Well, now here that is to bite me in the ass. And so... Um, nobody wanted to touch the policy. And I shouldn't say that. Everyone was willing to sell us a life insurance policy. However, every policy basically stipulated that my mother had to live for two, at least two years or a minimum of two years after the Um, policy started um, before it would pay out anything. So if my mother lived for a year and 364 days, nothing would happen. Um, It would have to be um, two years at least. And the only way that the policy paid out in shorter time than two years is if my mother died in an, you know, like a car accident or something like that. And so I exhausted every possibility I possibly could uh, in order to um, try to get a life insurance policy. And there was one company that I thought um, was going to do it. And then I didn't hear back from them for quite some time. And um, not long before my mother passed away, um, we were denied. And so it was... um, 
it was kind of panic because I I have to make all of these decisions for my mother's medical um, well-being and I have to be the straight man. I have to hold my composure. I have to be my mom's um, advocate, which means that from the point where I was told that the power of attorney was enacted, uh, I um, I had to take emotion and personal feelings out of the equation. I could not afford to be emotional about it. Um, my mother charged me with um, being the person that made those decisions for her. And so in order for me to do those things, I had to separate my um, my grief and my um, my uh, my emotions and the fact that my mother is laid up in a hospital fighting for her life out of the equation. And, um, you know, it's hard enough to um, see that happen to someone that you love, but to basically have to act like it doesn't bother you um, for the purposes of making sure that you are of of a sound body and mind to make those decisions, but also because, you know, there was a lot of tension between me and um, some of my siblings and some of my family about the decisions that I was making for my mom because they were emotional about it and I couldn't be. And so um, things got ugly quite a few times in this entire process. And... Um, conversations that I had and some of the things that were happening and family members calling the hospital and telling them that, um, you know, I don't want my mother to have this medication because it's speeding up her death and basically um, having back room conversations to try to um, surplant me as my mother's medical power of attorney and trying to get in her ear to say that that was a decision that she made under duress and that I forced her to make it despite the fact that she made the decision to appoint me as her medical proxy months before um, any of this had come to pass. Um, and let me tell you, uh, I was accused of some pretty awful things, um, not the least of which was uh, conspiring with the, um, the doctors and the nurses to, um, basically murder my mother by either by, um, failing to act on her behalf or by signing off on her getting medications that basically, um, accelerated her death to the point of being a fast forward. And so I'm having to maintain my composure as her medical proxy while all of this is going on and trying to get things figured out. How am I, how are we going to pay for this funeral? And, um, how are, how are we going to deal with her apartment and all of these things? And, uh, it was hard. Um, it was very, very hard. 
and um i i didn't get to spend a lot of time with my mom at the end insofar as i didn't get to be in the room with her and spend time with her um because i was trying to um handle some of the more mundane things and some of the bureaucracy and the business aspect of it because let me tell you that um death is a business in in the world especially in the this country and so um you have to talk to a lot of people about um somebody as if they don't matter um and that they are just um a customer so talking to funeral homes and um and uh and to doctors and specialists and nursing staff about my mother and trying to be a good son and trying to be um maintain my composure while a bunch a bunch of people are talking about her like she's just another number um and that is the ugly side of this entire thing is the lack of compassion and i understand it's not because these people necessarily have a vendetta against my mother or they don't like her but that's the business that they're in and so they can't be emotional about it and i understand it but on the flip side of that coin is her son and her family coming to grips with the fact that um she's dying and uh and so my mother's health began to take a downward trend and so the doctors are telling us now you know now may it might be two or three months max that she's got left and at one point you know maybe a week and so we're we're scrambling to figure out what what's going to happen and how this is going to go and um and for a day or two her her condition was grave and we thought that it was time and then like a phoenix out of the ashes she made a turnaround and she was starting to gain some weight and the color was coming back to her um to her skin and she was glowing and um she was herself she was making jokes and and that um that spunk that spark was um was there sorry so she started to improve um throughout this whole thing my my mother my mother's brain her personality was never wavered she was always herself um when she could be um but her 
her uh her condition worsened um you know they were having to drain fluid out of her um out of her um plural space um twice a day you know they're showing up with these plurix catheters and they you know uh they basically hook this clear tube up to your um to your midsection and they stick it in and the um, there's this little remote and you you twist the thing and it begins to suck the fluids out of your pleural space and the thing is is the human body the organs in your body are in a very specific place and so when you have fluid buildup in that area it pushes the organs out of where they um naturally sit and so that is a very painful thing and so doing things like um sitting up or or getting out of bed to use the bathroom or rolling over in your sleep or breathing using the bathroom are very very painful and very very exhausting so the only way that um this could work at least as far as draining fluid is concerned is to um to do this twice a day and it was very very painful for my mother and she she tolerated it as long as she could and um they had to give her um um pain medication about a half an hour before the the fluid was being drained every day because um it just it hurts and some days um no fluid would come out and some days a lot of fluid would come out but um you know the organs have been pushed out of their normal natural place and then when you suck the fluid out um the organs shift back into their natural place and that's painful and so um i can't even begin to understand what that feels like um and i don't want to but um that's what my mom was dealing with and so um i want to say uh the end of march i'm sorry uh the end of april um maybe the 25th or 26th um i made the decision to um accept what was happening um and move my mom into hospice care so that she could live out the rest of her days with some dignity um as much as you can have when you die which isn't much but um we had the option to have at home hospice care and um which involved having to have family be involved with her um care and bathing her and feeding her and changing her tubes and all that kind of stuff and not that I wouldn't do anything for my mother to take care of her but um I was concerned not only as her son but as the person in charge for medical decisions that she wasn't going to get the quality of care that she needed to have um 
if she was at home um, versus being at a hospital or at a um, rehabilitation facility or a hospice facility. And also because my mother was struggling with the idea of her family seeing her in the condition that she was in, um, I wanted to spare her of that. So um, the decision was made to move her to hospice. And so um, the last night that she spent at the hospital, um, I was there. And um, this would be Wednesday, the 27th of April. And so she was going to go to hospice the next morning. And so um, I spent the night and for the eight or ten hours that we were there um it was it was great and <sighs> the cancer didn't exist and the problems of the world didn't exist and i got to have a a meaningful genuine conversation <sighs> with my mom and um maybe someday I'll talk about the things that we talked about in more detail but um I got to spend one last night with my mom where it was just me and her, and nothing else mattered. And we got to watch movies and tell jokes and talk about her favorite things. And um, just bond as a mom and son can. So, um, she went to hospice on Thursday, the 28th, and we checked her in, and going into a hospice facility, um, there's a little bit more freedom, um, with the amount of family that can visit, um, and having a room that you can, uh, decorate and feel a little bit more like home so that's what we tried to do um despite everything that was going on and the drama that was happening behind the scenes between um some of my dissenting f familial opinions and myself um tried to make my mom feel at home and and comfortable and so um she went to hospice on Thursday the 28th, and um, I was there for most of the day, and on Friday she was good, and on Saturday um, she was good, and then uh, she went to sleep on Saturday um, the 30th, and um, Saturday was the last day that I talked to my mom. Um, 
she went to sleep that day, later in the day, and um, me and members of my family were taking turns um, spending time with her and making sure that she was okay. And so on Sunday morning, um, she slept and she wasn't responding. She um, obviously, like I said, um, was very exhausted. At this point in her life, her body is working extra hard just to do things like breathe and for her heart to pump and for fluids to circulate and all of that kind of stuff that we take for granted. So she's tired. Um, the body's more tired than usual because it's working harder than it normally does. And her heart was working very, very hard to pump oxygen to the rest of her body. And so at some point on Sunday, um, that Sunday, um, the 1st of May, um, she had a, a, she woke up and, and ate some food and had uh, some kind of conversation with one of my uncles. And then she went back to sleep. And I came back to the hospice facility later that evening um, because um, we wanted to celebrate Mother's Day and bring some stuff for her. And uh, she was asleep. And I didn't want to try to wake her or or perk her up or anything because again I understand that you know the body needs to recover and it's working overtime and so I left her a note and a text message and a voicemail telling her that I love her and to you know get a hold of me when she wakes up and uh, <sighs> went back home and um the following morning, I got a phone call from the hospice nurse telling me that my mother's condition is deteriorating and that she is now considered not responsive um, because it had been over 24 hours since she had um, had a conversation. And, and so I, I, I drove back to Fond du Lac. Uh, as that I as I had done um, multiple times in the over the course of the short time that all of this sort of unfolded, and um, basically the hospice nurse said that you know when she comes to check on my mom, she she cleans her and she gives her her medication and she checks for um, changes her bandages and checks for you know, signs of discomfort and that kind of thing. And my mother wasn't talking. She was not responsive anymore, but um, she was showing pain signs. So whenever my the hospice nurse had to turn her for something or um, sit her up, she's not saying that she's in pain, but the look on her face is saying that she's in pain. She's wincing. Um, she's got tears coming out of her eyes. She's in pain. Um, and she would ask her, are you in pain? Are you in pain? And eventually my mom was able to muster an answer and asked her, do you want pain medication? And um, she said yes. 
And so the hospice nurse basically told me that um, that um, we're near the end and that based on her experience as a hospice nurse that the next step um, would be entering the active dying stage, which based on her experience could be you know, 20 minutes after entering the dying stage, it could be several days or a week or so. There's no way to tell. And so um, I stayed um, overnight to monitor her condition. And the hospice nurse increased her the frequency of her visits. And so Tuesday morning, um, she came. Um, Tuesday the 3rd, um, the hospice nurse came. And... Um, did her check and um, this was um, let me go back a little bit here um, I came back to the hospice facility to check on my mom and um, I walked up to her bedside and I could feel heat radiating from her body and her skin was yellow she was jaundiced and um because I knew that her liver function was as bad as it was, um, and because I had been doing the research and reading the books and the websites and the the uh, the boards and the questions and answers, I understood what was happening. And basically, my mother's liver was shutting down. And jaundice is one of the telltale signs of a liver failing. And the fever that she had was more or less because um, the human body is a magnificent specimen. And so um, it tries to keep you alive. It doesn't want to die. And so the brain was telling the heart to pump, to work harder and and beat faster and one of the things that happens is the heart beats faster and is trying to send as much blood as possible to the extremities and to the organs because the body starts to shut down and so the other organs try to compensate for the fact that the the other organs and you know things are shutting down and so the heart is working at a rapid pace and so that's why my mother's body temperature was so high but the um, hospice nurse did show up and and um, told me officially that my mother had acted entered the active dying stage, and so um, I alerted the rest of my family, and um, it was just a matter of time, and and we didn't know how long it was going to take, but we did know that um, for all intents and purposes. Um, my mom was gone. Um, she was still breathing and she still had life and her heart was beating, but she was gone. And so the hospice nurse told me very, um, very precisely the things that I should expect, that we should expect to see um, as the body starts to die. And uh, um, most of 
what you see is a change in breathing and the sound of the breathing and how it might become more labored. Um, and, you know, the brain is still active, so there's a possibility that uh, there's anxiety and um, fear and um, whatever um, the brain goes through as it understands that the body's dying and there's nothing that it can do. So um, in order to um, not have my mom suffer, uh, especially considering that she had uh, crippling anxiety and I didn't want her breathing to be labored, um, I ordered um, one final dose of um, <sighs> pain medication, which both helped with the pain but also helped her relax so that she didn't have to struggle to breathe um, as she was leaving. And uh, and so it was around 8 o'clock, 8.30 that she had the medication and um, she was very peaceful and um, she wasn't struggling to breathe and it didn't sound like you know, she was wheezing or anything like that. And so family was able to just gather around and tell stories and enjoy each other's company while um, my mother made the transition. And about an hour and a half later, as we were sitting around <clears throat> as a family, um, just reminiscing, my mother took one last deep breath and for about five seconds held that breath and then let out a very slow and peaceful uh, exhale. And then that was it. Um, And she was pronounced dead at um, at about 10.30 on uh, May 3rd. And uh, I remember um, the outpouring of, of hysterical crying and emotions in that room. And I was not one of those people, not because I didn't feel um, the pain of my mother drawing her last breath and being in the room for it, but um, because I went right into <sighs> business mode and I got up and walked out of the room and I called the hospice nurse to let her know that my mother had passed away and that I needed her to come there. Um, and with a doctor so that she could have her um, time called, um, her time of death. And so my mother lay dead um, for about 20 minutes until they showed up and uh, 
they um, pronounce her dead, and then uh, the hospice nurse uh, cleans her up and uh, changes her clothes, and the funeral director shows up and um, gives us time to say goodbye. And um, takes her body and <sighs> takes it to the funeral home for um, funeral. So um, there's a lot more to the story. And um, for um, the purposes of just because I'm, I'm telling this to you, sort of from my own recollection off the top of my head and I didn't really prepare ahead of time um I left some parts out but also because um some of the parts are um really hard to talk about and uh of course there's the funeral and everything else that um happened afterward but um that's what happened with my mom my mother uh 35 days after finding out that she had collapsed and um, was in a coma and that she had cancer, she passed away. So, I'm sorry um, that this episode is um, probably a lot longer than um, I would have intended. And if you're still listening, thank you. Um, I hope this is a as hard for you as, as it is for me, but um, I'm going to wrap this episode up now um, and hope that um, for any of you out there that um, might be struggling with your own cancer battle or any of you out there who know somebody who has cancer, loved one or a friend or work colleague, whatever the case may be. Um, it, uh, I, I feel your pain. Uh, I really do. And I hope that uh, you, whatever you're going through, because everyone's cancer battle is different, um, I hope that... Um, you have the love and support of the people around you to help you um, make it through. Because um, cancer is not a disease that affects just one person. It affects lots of people. Um, and not to sound selfish, but um, cancer um, might have a a greater impact psychologically on the people who care about you than the person who has the cancer. And please don't take that as a, a disrespectful or anything, but, um, you know, it's, it's a very, very hard fight. Um, and it's hard to see someone that you love um, uh, go through it and see their their condition deteriorate and um, 
watch them wither and die in some cases. Um, but you do the best you can to, to, to fight it and to be there for the person who needs you the most. And that's all you can do is just keep, keep, uh, keep going as best you can. So that's going to do it for me for the first official episode of this podcast. And uh, just one more thing. Make time. Uh, you never know when the person, whether it's a mother or a father or a sister or brother, um, make time. Um, don't let the, the, the pressures of life, the responsibilities of life, work or lesser things get in the way of making time for the people that matter because one day they're going to be gone and you'll be sitting up in the middle of the night talking into a microphone telling people not to make the same mistakes you made. <laughs> Good night.